boys, I am doing dry January, or as the oh, kids wow. would say, I am sober maxing. Uh, I honestly, <laughs> yeah, the, the effects are crazy. I honestly don't know what to do with all this excess IQ. My brain is actually <laughs> operating at 100% capacity. I'm like, I don't know, fucking Stephen Hawking right now. Wait, wrong fucking Uh-oh. comparison. <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, no, uh, yeah, uh, sobriety is not leading me down the path. <laughs> the path of the island uh, island surface uh, but but it is it is it is kind of interesting that you know when even if i had drank like 3 or 4 days before the 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 speed at which i can read the speed at which i can memorize uh the mm. speed at which i can basically uh consume content even yeah i'm talking even degenerate content like tiktok and you so go on. 1 hour was, after not drinking yeah literally yeah i'm, I'm a, like, like, God. like 700 <laughs> iq bro i i i feel like i can uh, establish a country bro maybe <laughs> See that's why that that's why the the evil nefarious Albanians behind everything introduced uh, alcohol to, to the Yugoslavs, um, <laughs> <laughs> so they can keep you down. Ma- <laughs> can keep, Imagine <laughs> how, how we would literally be living on Mars right now if we didn't have alcohol. That is that is the that is the the Western disease thrown at at the Slavs, I guess. Mm. You know, no, don't touch the, my the, alcohol. I'm 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 alcohol pilled <laughs> till I fucking die. <laughs> the, the fog. There is beauty in the fog, right? There's absolutely Beauty in the <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that? Have you seen that like late '90s uh, picture where it's the you know the um, uh, American astronaut and he has the f- uh, American flag on the moon? Yeah. Uh, but somebody edited it to make uh, they made it the Serbian flag instead, and it's just like <laughs> oh, like Serbia is all great. Well, I was like this this is what Serbia would achieve <laughs> if there was no alcohol. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I would I would argue actually quite to the contrary. If we were a bit uh, drunker in the '80s, uh, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have time to do all this ethnic uh, divisiveness. <laughs> Uh, even honestly. even if people from ethnicities that fucking hate each other when they're on the table mm. eating and drinking, they they get over the the the, the taboo topics pretty quickly, and then yeah. you know they end up seeing man, we're pretty much the same fucking. Thing. Yeah, you can't so, fight over chivapi, I don't think. Exactly. <laughs> Except actually, Kian Peel made the best sketch of all time yes, yeah. about the Balkans. It's called Macedonian Cafe, and it's literally them fighting about the chivapi. Yeah, it yeah. is. Here we serve the chivapi. Over there, those Albanian sons of my bitch, they serve the kebapi. Chevapi, kebapi, chevapi, kebapi. Everybody just fucking YouTube that shit. It's an amazing sketch. I know it literally like word by word. And now I can actually remember it because I'm sober. There we go. There you go. See? So happy for you. How are your drinking habits? Speaking of which, your number one vice uh jt yeah the, i'm the, still the, the clean elixir of dr of pepper i'm still You're clean, clean doc- i keep Fuck seeing yeah. all these memes there's this one meme of this old lady <laughs> who's being interviewed on tv and and she's like well everybody always she's 100 years old or something everybody always asks me what my secret to long life is and i always tell mm-hmm. them it's three dr peppers a day and i'm like god <laughs> of course damn it, it you can't say this to me <laughs> she's like three different doctors told me that it was going to kill me but i outlived yeah. them <laughs> Yeah, fucking enabler. Uh, yeah. Oh my god. I, I hate that shit. Uh, like, 
Oh, I outlived my dog. Okay, yes, you have some genetics that are keeping you, uh, you know, like, all right. Mm. Uh, the, the other 90,000. Mm, there must be something to <laughs> this. <laughs> exactly right. You know what? We're keeping the Dr. Pepper secrets down. No, matter, no, no, no matter how much I want to enable myself as a, let's call it, uh, enjoyer of literally only one thing, but let's call it a degenerate lifestyle by, by fascist yeah. definitions, yeah. Uh, it's still like the easiest thing to, to fucking counter argue. If somebody tells you, yo, I smoked uh, two packs a day and I lived my grandpa lived until 100 <laughs> literally just tell them yeah. if he didn't he would live until 125 probably <laughs> then literally that's literally the counter argument that done end of conversation yeah. but whatever but he wouldn't be wasted the entire rest of his life what are you mm. talking about he wouldn't be seeing fucking elephants in this guy yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the cerebral atrophy from all the drinking it's what kept him going <laughs> oh my god Hakeem, I have, this is completely unrelated. Well, I guess it's kind of yes. related, medical stuff. I mm. was reading a book, and it's, yes. it's a sci-fi book, so I don't know if this is a real thing. Can you tell me, right. it's a type of injury, oh, what, I wrote it down, reperfusion, reperfusion, something like that. Reperfusion. Do you yeah. know what that is? Reperfusion injury, yeah, exactly right. A reperfusion injury is basically, for example, let's say you have, uh, you cut off circulation to a particular body part um, for whatever reason, either because of a crush injury or because of something, something no matter what the reason is, mm-hmm. um, and you wait a little bit too long, and then afterwards you reopen the vasculature, the circulation, which lets blood flow back into the area. Um, the, da- the tissues that were in that area have been damaged to a point um for example many cells uh, have died and then let out all the electrolytes within them so then this could really increase the level of potassium in your blood that's one thing that can happen another thing is that the sudden high oxygen like uh, like oxygen rich blood um can cause oxidative stress on uh differing structures uh in that particular extremity or what have you it is a real thing yes huh so the blood coming back into that part of your body like your arm for example would do yeah more damage would do more damage than good if you've waited too long to start uh the circulation back or like to return circulation yeah exactly right uh don't read about crush syndromes don't do you want to or what's it called um uh, what is it called in english basically when you have it when you starve a person for a very long time and then you make them uh you uh, refeeding syndrome mm -hmm. Uh, refeeding syndrome is another one of those things for those unaware basically um when they liberated the the uh, camps uh, the concentration camps uh, in in Germany and, and Poland and whatnot. Uh, they saw found these people were basically living skeletons. Um, and uh, the first thing that they were, you know, they they organized them. They're like, all right, well, we need to feed you guys. And a lot of well-meaning soldiers saw these people starving and gave them lots of food, thinking yeah. that hey, they're you know, like these people are starving. But you're not supposed to do that. I'm not gonna go through the physiology. It's fairly simple, but it's TLDR. But basically, it does more harm than good. You need to introduce food very slowly to acclimate mm. the body again because of again electrolyte disturbances that happen imagine how fucked up that is to die at that fucking point bro yeah, yeah right that exactly is right. and you know you, you you're like finally free you're eating and boom all of a sudden you wake up in heaven you're like what the fuck dude uh, what the on. fuck come <laughs> yeah. on man hi I uh, think waking up in heaven is a, is a better alternative to, you know, that block of cheese yeah. that you're eating. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> Government cheese. <laughs> Soldier trench cheese, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Fuck that. What were you reading, if you don't yeah, mind me asking? That's The Expanse. The, uh, oh. the, yeah, it's really good. I I had watched the... Um, ah, but what season are you on? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I finished the show a while back. But I, I wanted to read the books because they go further. Like, they go further mm. into the future than the than the show. And I wanted to compare the two. It's actually yeah. pretty close to the show. So that was kind of yeah. cool, at least. Don't get, don't get JT into manga. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Very nice. Very He's going to be on volume 600 of One Piece. <laughs> oh, my God. 
None of you have better taste than that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anime at all. That's my taste. Yeah, like I, everything that like. Okay, how do I put uh. this without sounding big? <laughs> I literally cannot like ninety percent of stuff that comes out of Japan. Like my brain is just yeah. wired different. I cannot yeah. even even uh, Japanese RPGs. Like uh, I, I like I, okay. I pl- I play the Souls games or whatever, which can mm. be defined as uh, JRPGs yeah. to an extent and so on. And even those, I have to you know, muster my strength to, to, to like go through the very, you know, peculiar type of writing, which introduces <laughs> either mm. twists or filler yeah. is the filler that mm. fucks with me. Why so much? Fi- like, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. the fact that I don't get it. Doesn't mean it's bad, but mm. I, I just, it feels like a waste of time. And that's coming from a guy that like literally has become an expert in wasting time. That's basically my whole life. <laughs> so I, I just, I can't, I can't, I can't sit through uh, all the, all the filler in order to get a little bit of reward at the end when finally Naruto defeats the 730th Fox Terminator guy or whatever the fuck happens. <laughs> yeah. I just can't get past the titles of these things. So it's like, oh, you don't like, oh, the beauty of stars in our hearts will lead us gracefully towards the future. Part seven, Requiem. like, Jesus Christ. Man. Oh, yeah. just, <laughs> this, uh. oh, my God. Yeah, no, I love it. And there's always some weird... Uh, but even but even like re- regular Japanese game like uh, Yuka Kim, you're a big f- uh, fan of Metal Gear Solid, right? Yes. But it <laughs> also has some so. stuff that's like, why yeah, the fuck is yeah. this happening? Yeah. Like certain Weird. like bosses, yeah. especially. You know, the game is like uh, rooted in reality, and, da, 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 and then all of a sudden there's this tentacle guy that's levitating uh, above you, and he's mm. like throwing shit. It's so yeah. He's like Mantis. Yeah, I guess I don't <laughs> know. I just remember he was from twitching. You got doesn't know the names. Yeah, yeah. Fuck you. Yeah, no, 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 no. For sure, I, I don't blame you at all. But there, it is a fantastic, fantastic series. It's very difficult though. Like I'll give you one example, which is completely unnecessary. For some reason, I mean, there is some like plot line. I guess they try to justify it ad hoc. In in Metal Gear Three, you have a, a side character named Eva, um, and she just has her her tits out the entire time, basically. Mm-hmm. Which good for her, why not? Um, but it's, eh, you know, like it doesn't really add to the story <laughs> in in any way. Um, but that one, they try to at least write the story around it. The one that I don't like, uh, I don't know if you guys know Phantom Pain, Metal Gear Five, mm-hmm. but there's a character in there uh, called Quiet, and she wears like a, a two piece bikini basically the entire time. <laughs> And the, the the way that they try to fucking and rationalize stealth, it, know, yeah, 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 no, exactly, still, is because she's like half plant and she needs skin to photosynthesize <laughs> or some plant. shit. I don't, I don't remember. It was some bullshit, <laughs> and it's so clear they just want to sell figurines. That's right? funny. Okay, uh, I'm on board now. I, I want to play the half plant lady game. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't sleep at all last night. A strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. To regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States requiring a full retaliatory response from the Soviet Union.
Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. Not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom here in this hemisphere. And we hope around the world, God willing, that goal will be achieved. What's usually taught about the Cuban Missile Crisis? The crisis unfolded between October 16th and 28th, 1962, triggered by the Soviet Union's deployment of missiles in Cuba, causing the United States to perceive it as a threat to its security. Following numerous close calls and escalating tensions, the crisis was ultimately resolved through the diplomatic efforts led by John F. Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev. At least that's what we're told. Let's get into some context. The real story. During a conference in January 1989, Robert McNamara, who served as the Secretary of Defense in the Kennedy administration, disclosed a critical aspect of the crisis. He revealed one thing, which was a surprise at the time, but even more so with the people who were planning this entire ordeal. At the onset of the crisis, the United States had a significant nuclear arsenal of 5,000 warheads. At the time, the Soviets possessed only 300, a ratio of approximately 17 to 1 in favor of the United States. Furthermore, when considering strategic bomber planes, the things that would be actually carrying these explosives and then subsequently deploying them, the uh, ratio was nearly 10 to 1, demonstrating a clear advantage for the United States in terms of military capabilities. So, revealing that the claim that the United States would be threatened is rests on thin, thin water, if we can even consider it to be. Um, 5,000 to 300 nukes is an overwhelming advantage. Um, of course, this would be more or less corrected throughout the Cold War, but we're talking this, the 60s period. The strategic balance likewise favored the Americans and their ability to make a first nuclear strike on the USSR, particularly because the United States had placed nuclear missiles in Turkey and Italy. The Soviet leadership decided to put missiles in Cuba to counteract this deployment by the United States after the Americans had already placed missiles in Italy and Cuba. This was a reaction, not a primary move by the Soviets or by the Cubans for that matter. The context before this is, seven months prior to the thing that would become known as the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Board of American Chiefs of Staff posed, and I quote, to manufacture a provocation justifying United States military action against Cuba. Two days later, the Office of the Secretary of Defense submitted a list of measures that could serve as a pretext for justifying U.S. military intervention on the island. Of course, unsurprisingly, the Soviet and Cuban intelligence systems realized that the United States is planning something along these lines, the Soviet leadership, recognizing Cuba's vulnerability in direct military aggression from the United States, proposed a, an interesting solution, one that was uh, very enthusiastically accepted by the Cubans. They considered deploying several things. First, a contingent of Soviet troops on the island. Secondly, medium-range nuclear missiles on the island, which would be manned and controlled by said Soviet troops. And number three, several military experts in relation to nuclear deployment. The rationale behind this proposal was the belief that such a presence would deter American aggression against Cuba, as any attack against Cuba, in this case, would not be against Cuba alone, but also a direct confrontation with the Soviet Union, as Soviet troops would be targeted. This strategy aimed to safeguard Cuba by shifting the dynamics of potential conflict. Furthermore, the Soviet leadership thought that, since they've accepted living with American nukes on their doorstep for so long, that the Americans would likewise reciprocate. We'd be remiss to not realize that that's not how the United States has ever operated, but we... 
I think we can admire the goodwill or uh, the hopeful thinking of the Soviets in this. Um, you've always been the aggressor, so maybe you won't mind being, you know, uh, this is not even being aggressed against in that in any particular sense, but at least parity. But the Americans did not take a liking to this. A minor historical tidbit: um, Cuban sources have mentioned this in several points. They say that the Cuban government drew up a legal justification uh, that was valid by international law for the presence of Soviet Soviet troops and Soviet nuclear weapons on their territory. And from the very beginning, they want to make this a public statement, as in uh, completely publicize the delivery of Soviet military personnel and nukes to Cuba. This was something that the Soviets rejected outright, although uh, the details as to why they rejected it, uh, rejected them is somewhat unclear. We can hazard a guess, most likely because it would have been a diplomatic issue, which is what it ended up becoming. Regardless, the transfer of Soviet military personnel and weapons occurred throughout the summer of 1962. And by early October, we're nearing the, the, the date, by early October, American spy planes, which regularly flew over Cuba, that is to say, regularly violated the sovereignty of the, of the Republic of, of, of the island, these spy planes had uh, flown over and taken photographs of construction materials for housing missile systems. The United States isn't stupid, and neither is the CIA. Kennedy was immediately informed, and then subsequently he formed a committee after consultations with the CIA and national intelligence, and the general conclusions that they reached was a small minority believed that the rockets in Cuba did not alter the balance of forces and they didn't really need to do anything because of the things I mentioned before. The United States had overwhelming quantity of nuclear warheads, they had better delivery mechanisms, and they were closer to Soviet soil than the Soviet Union was to the United States for first strike potential. This was a minority voice, though. The majority voice, however, is the one that always reigns free and uh, supreme in the United States, which is calling for surprise airstrikes on rocket bases and Cuban infrastructure. This was a plan that was almost put into fruition at the time. The committee uh, reached basically next to a consensus in favor of military action also subsequently. So not only rocket attack, not only airstrikes, but also a full-out invasion. They did not know at the time that Cuba had already installed nuclear warheads on the island aimed directly at the United States with the specific purpose of rejecting a U.S. landing on the island. They did not know this point. Thankfully, though, in the final moments of this uh, conference, they realized or they, they acquiesced to the opinion that it's too high risk for general nuclear war. So they abandoned the idea of military intervention, although they got very close to it. Interestingly, the Soviet Union never considered uh, invading Italy or Turkey for the same, same thing. So it's interesting just to contrast but by October 22nd, Kennedy gave a televised speech making these developments public, uh, the fact that the Soviets had transferred troops and missiles onto Cuba. Uh, and in a typical American fashion, lied through his teeth about the general ideological uh, trends that exist within the United States. Our own strategic missiles have never been transferred to the territory of any other nation under a cloak of secrecy and deception. And our history, unlike that of the Soviets since the end of World War II, demonstrates that we have no desire to dominate or conquer any other nation or impose our system upon its people. Initially, focusing on the diplomatic dimension of the crisis, Soviet Prime Minister Nikita Khrushchev, which was also the Soviet premier at the time due to two different positions, uh, but regardless, he made two peace offers amid the turmoil of this declaration. Um, several back and forth that happened between October 22nd and this, the days that happened afterwards, um, where um, memos were sent back and forth and the media went crazy with uh, calls for essentially war, particularly the United States media, and of course the United States military establishment 
establishment was very gung-ho about either invading Cuba or striking the Soviet Union or starting something. Interestingly, though, uh, on the Soviet side, the first instance or the first uh, recourse was to send peace offers. October 22nd, Khrushchev sent or communicated to Kennedy that the removal of missiles in Cuba could be ensured if the United States basically pinky promised to not invade Cuba, which, I mean, the, it's not worth the ink it's written on. You can just ask the Native Americans of that, any American promise. But regardless... Um, at dusk, uh, in a particularly gangsterish move following this communication between Khrushchev and Kennedy, Kennedy sent his brother to deliver a verbal message to the Soviet ambassador for transmission to Khrushchev. The gist of the uh, verbal communication was, if the Cuban rockets were not immediately removed, the United States would begin military action on October 29th. There were no guarantees that the United States would not invade Cuba subsequently, even if they removed the missiles. On the 27th, after a lot more military posturing by the United States, Another Soviet proposition was made, suggesting the withdrawal of Cuban missiles being contingent upon the US removal of rockets from Turkey, which at first you'd think this is another, another step up. At first, the Soviets just wanted the Americans to say, yeah, we won't invade Cuba, but now they want them to remove missiles. Isn't this a, you know, a, a larger demand? You'd be right in thinking that. There were missiles in Turkey and they were directed to the Soviets. Uh, the thing is, though, these missiles were not the, you know, brand spanking new ones that the United States had delivered. Uh, in fact, they were aging and kind of, you know, falling apart. And the United States had wanted to replace these missiles for a while, um, particularly with the Polaris missiles, which are sub submarine delivered. So the Soviets basically, uh, gave the, the Soviet offer was replace your missiles, but you'll have uh, cover, basically, mm. uh, to pretend like something happened. There was a tit for tat, and even the Soviet population would have uh, an understanding because, oh, the United States removed missiles. Um, so a lot of diplomacy and a lot of, you know, um, uh, theater was happening in the background. Regardless, given the urgency of this particular moment, it was decided not to wait for, you know, how slow encryption would be and de-encryption de would be. Uh, so rather than um, sending the normal methods, like for diplomatic commu uh, communication of particularly high-level diplomatic talks, um, they transmitted this offer in clear text by Radio Moscow, so over uh, the airwaves. Um, of course, they did not consult the Cubans first, which they became very upset about at the time, but we'll get to that. Uh, it's worth noting that, as I mentioned, the U.S. had deemed these missiles in Turkey, um, which were, again, the catalyst for this entire crisis. Uh, if the United States never had missiles in Turkey, then the Soviet Union would have never put missiles in Cuba. Uh, that point aside, these uh, missiles were uh, obsolete. They were scheduled already for withdrawal. Um, and uh, Khrushchev's suggestion essentially was very pragmatic, if not even soft, you could say. Interestingly, though, was uh, or what's interesting was Kennedy's response. The National Security Advisor, McGeorge uh, Bundy, stated in response to uh, the request or the offer of Khrushchev to remove missiles from, from Turkey in return for uh, removal of missiles from Cuba, McGeorge mm -hmm. Bundy said, the current threat to peace is not in Turkey, it is in Cuba. Again, uh, in clear signs of aggression, needless aggression. They were not 100% acquiescing. In the middle of all of this, the Cubans, feeling somewhat without any say, which is, of course, they're right. Everything's happening on their island, but they're not part of these diplomatic talks. They declared a five-point program, and I will quote part of it for you. There would be no guarantee, meaning the removal of missiles from Cuba, there will be no guarantee unless, in addition to the elimination of the naval blockade Kennedy promised, which for context was essentially a blockade on top of um, the, the economic embargo that was placed on Cuba, uh, Kennedy uh, called for a naval blockade, which basically didn't allow anything to come in and out of the um, island at the time. Uh, so uh, in addition to the elimination of the naval blockade Kennedy promised, the following measures would also be taken. 
Number one, the lifting of the economic embargo and all trade and economic pressure measures exerted by the United States against Cuba. This is something that has still not occurred now, and this is it's over 60 years since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, number two, the cessation of all subversive activities, launches, and landing of weapons and explosives by air and sea, organization of mercenary invasions, infiltration of spies, and sabotage. This point has also not been met and continues to be conducted by the United States on Cuban soil in violation of Cuban sovereignty and international law. Number three, the cessation of pirate attacks also continues to occur by the United States. Uh, it didn't stop then, didn't stop now. Number four, the cessation of all violations of Cuban airspace by American warplanes and ships. This... <laughs> <laughs> As you may imagine, is also something that still happens to this day. And number five, a retreat from the Guantanamo Naval Base and return of this Cuban territory occupied by the United States to Cuba. This has also likewise not occurred to this day. Not one point of these uh, of this five-point program was accepted or recognized by the United States even 60 years after it was first made. Um, and of course, at the time, uh, the Americans made uh, an express point of rejecting the points that were delivered to them by the Cubans. Regardless, the Soviets tried their best, and they, following many goodwill gestures, let's say, the U.S. finally agreed to remove the missiles in Turkey that I may I remind you again were or they were already planning to remove, but that they would that the United States would only remove them in secret. Number one and number two, only six months after the Cuban missiles are withdrawn. So that means that uh, once the Cuban missile, the Soviet missiles within Cuba are withdrawn for another six months, the Turkish U.S. Uh, nuclear missiles in Turkey they would remain still as a threat, mind you. Uh, but the Soviets accepted this. This was af- this was the the offer being made, uh, counter offer that was being made, and the Soviets did accept. Why did they need to do this theater? Why six months after the Cuban missile missiles are withdrawn? Why do it in secret? According to a reporter, uh, Michael Dobbs, he stated, if the if it appeared that the United States was dismantling the missile bases unilaterally under pressure of the Soviets, meaning the NATO alliance might crack, and that's what they were afraid of. Interesting that the requirements of world peace, as they put it, weren't worth uh, dismantling or not even dismantling, but uh, hurting the, the, the confidence of a already aggressive military coalition. Concerning the Cubans, in the absence of a deterrent and a significant reduction of Soviet forces within Cuba, essentially eliminating Soviet presence within Cuba, the U.S. offered a vague commitment to not invade. And by the way, it is as vague as that. Um, it is basically, I think, two sentences worth where they're basically like, oh, yeah, we pinky promise. We're not going <laughs> to. I promise. <laughs> All right. Across my heart. I'm not going to, you know. But post-crisis, Cuba did not escape unscathed. Uh, on November 8th, which is just a few days uh, after the missile crisis uh, ended, uh, following the Pentagon's announcement of the dismantling of all known Soviet missile bases within Cuba, a sabotage team was uh, sent into Cuba and they executed an attack on a Cuban factory filled with civilians, resulting in the tragic death of over 400 workers. This operation, known as Mongoose, was part of Kennedy's terrorism campaign in Cuba. Cuban revolutionary troops such as these have invaded Castro's leftist island fortress, reportedly rallied by a mysterious coded radio message. Alert, alert, look well at the rainbow. The fish will be running very soon. From the sea and by parachute, the rebels have struck along the coast within 90 miles of Havana. Initial accounts of the fighting sketchy, but strafing and bombing of communications and military targets reported with heavy casualties. Fidel's grip is threatened as word of some defections comes out, but the fiery bearded Castro is hardly short on words as he attacks what he calls United States imperialism and calls on sister Latin American republics to aid Cuba. 
The same line is followed at a dramatic meeting of the United Nations General Assembly's political committee by Cuban Foreign Minister Raul Roa, charging his nation has been invaded by what he terms mercenaries from Guatemala and Florida. Quickly, forcefully, the charges are denied by Chief U.S. Delegate Adley E. Stevenson. These charges are totally false, and I deny them categorically. The United States has committed no aggression against Cuba, and no offensive has been launched from Florida or from any other part of the United States. At a secret base in the Guatemalan jungle, American CIA agents had been training Cuban exiles to invade Cuba. Just three days before the planned invasion, Kennedy denied any possibility of American intervention. There will not be under any conditions be an intervention in Cuba by United States Armed Forces. And this government will do everything it possibly can, and I think it can meet its responsibilities to make sure that there are no Americans involved in any actions inside Cuba. On April the 15th, 1961, just six American bombers, disguised in the colors of the Cuban Air Force, took off from Nicaragua for a crucial attack on Cuban airfields. The following day, just 1,500 exiles, equipped with American arms and ammunition, arrived at the Bay of Pigs, 125 miles to the south of Havana. A terrorism campaign initiated after one of the biggest gaffes in U.S. military history, the Bay of Pigs invasion. At 3.15 a.m., Fidel Castro was woken from his sleep. Invasion had come. Hordes of his reactionary countrymen had been dumped on his beaches under the logistical support of the U.S. military apparatus and the CIA. The troops were mobilized, for the revolution must be defended. Under the cover of darkness, the CIA-operated vessel Blagar and Barbara J initiated the Bay of Pigs invasion. Frogmen equipped for covert operations quickly disembarked, preparing for a strategic landing at Blue and Red Beach, as a ruse intended to confuse the Cubans on where the enemy would be landing. Together with the reactionary brigade 2506, they were supposed to distract Cuban forces from the main invasion, using sound technology which would make them think a whole army of ships was coming from that direction instead of the truly intended area of attack. Unfortunately for them, at around 1 a.m., floodlights were still illuminating the beach, and a patrol had spotted them. Before they were overrun, they managed to signal their superiors, leading to the American plan of distraction to fully and totally fall through. At 3.15 a.m., Fidel Castro was awakened to news of the invasion. Militia units were alerted and airstrikes were ordered. The Cuban leader, realizing the gravity of the situation, mobilized forces to counter the imminent threat. Castro departed personally to lead his forces into battle against these so-called brigadistas.
At daybreak, around 6.30, Cuban aircraft, including three FARC Furies and one B-26 bomber and two T-33s, launched a relentless assault on the counter-revolutionary ships still unloading troops. Approximately 20 minutes later, south of Playa Larga, the, the vessel Houston sustained severe damage from bombs and rockets, compelling its captain to intentionally beach it on the western side of the bay at around 8.50. Despite unloading around 270 troops, roughly 180 survivors struggled ashore, unable to participate further due to the loss of weapons and equipment. The demise of Houston dealt a significant blow to the Brigadistas as it carried crucial medical supplies, forcing the wounded to just lay scattered and bleeding on the salty, hot beaches which would soon be their graves. Around 7, Two counter-revolutionary FAL-B-26s targeted and sank to the Cuban Navy Patrol escort ship El Bayer. Subsequently, they joined two other B-26s in assaulting Cuban ground troops. Their mission included providing distraction air cover for paratroopers and ships suffering under Cuban air attacks. By 7.30, all M-41 tanks had landed at Blue Beach and the entire troop deployment concluded by 8.30. However, they couldn't really communicate with each other as radios were rendered inoperable by water during the chaotic landings. Bad started turning to worse, or from our perspective, to better. 9.30 a.m., FIRC Furies and T-33s targeted the brigadier ship Rio Escondido, causing it to catch on fire and totally sink. The ship carried plenty of important stuff, from enough food for 10 days to fuel and ammo, but the key strategic value of the now sunken Rio was that it was the actual radio communicator, connector, so to say, with the reactionary pilots, basically the air force of the invasion. With it being gone, they were basically completely cut off from their air support. The assault has begun on the dictatorship of Fidel Castro. At 11 a.m., Fidel Castro addressed the nation, denouncing the invaders as members of the exiled Cuban Revolutionary Front. The broadcast served to galvanize support against what was perceived as a threat to the revolution. Many farmers died because they immediately took up arms against the incoming threat as the Cuban military rushed to the front in the early hours of the conflict. After his address, Castro, as previously mentioned, went to join his troops in the assault. In an interview with the main state uh, cameraman of the day, the now 80-year-old Julio said that when pestered by his military advisors on not going to the front, Castro said, and I quote, Who the hell is the boss here? If I want to go fight, I'll damn well go. <laughs> As the previously mentioned Houston ship was burning in the distance, Castro was apparently on top of a tank as it repeatedly blasted shells into the crippled vessel. 
Keep filming, he shouted to his cameraman. Maybe you'll be able to catch the explosions. And while capitalists might call this over-the-top propaganda as communist goon over the absolute chadness of this man, I will direct mm. you at a at very clear evidence that Castro, someone who in the middle of a battle just wanted to get some good camera shots, was indeed one of the first left-wing YouTubers. You can quote <laughs> me on that. Um, sorry, um, back to the events. The Eisenhower administration had bequeathed the new president a force of anti-Castro exiles, training in Guatemala for an invasion of their homeland. Under pressure from his senior advisors, Kennedy gave his approval to the invasion. The CIA had organized the training of the guerrillas and had forcefully advocated the invasion. The Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense had approved its military aspects, and the Secretary of State had approved its political aspects. Yet, everything went wrong. At noon, invading ships, including Caribe and Atlantico, began retreating south to international waters. On the ground, invading troops were just constantly mowed down by aircraft and tank assault. Around 2.30 p.m., the Cubans suffered their biggest loss of the battle, known as the slaughter of the lost battalion. The 339th came under heavy attacks by Brigadista M41 tanks as they were setting up their positions, getting completely unfortunately obliterated. In the coming hours, the invading aircraft slowly started falling out of the sky left and right, losing pilots' machinery and the now desperately needed air support. At 5 p.m., what remained of the invaders' air force launched a failed attack on a Cuban airfield, blaming the weather for their failure, even though apparently some of the planes needed for the assault totally bailed and never lifted off in the first place. In the hour after that, with a few exceptions, the big, bad invading ships started pulling out, leaving their infantry scattered and bleeding on the beaches. At first, it was under the excuse of going and restocking, only to be replaced with total abandonment of the cause as they drifted into international waters, fearing more attacks by the Cuban Air Force. It was obvious to everyone that the battle at this point was over. During the course of the next day, April 18th, Cuban forces moved towards the beaches in full frontal assault. Their tanks and infantry clashed as fierce fighting continued until the invaders pretty much ran out of their CIA-supplied ammunitions. The invaders debated scattering into the forests and dedicated themselves to long-term guerrilla warfare, but decided to make a sort of last stand instead. A last stand which translates into pretty much all of them surrendering. As the fighting was going, Nikita Khrushchev sent a telegram to Kennedy stating that if the U.S. was to enter Cuba, nuclear war would begin. 
After a few last-ditch effort bombing runs by CIA-hired pilots, the Bergedistas fell into disorganized retreat. The invasion was over, one of the worst disasters in U.S. military history caused by backwards ideas of using a people to fight its own, caused by total ineptitude in organizing a war they themselves knew illegal, and most importantly, caused by the total moral bankruptcy of imperial conquest against a tiny island nation with a heart as big as a continent. I have emphasized before that this was a struggle of Cuban patriots against a Cuban dictator. While we could not be expected to hide our sympathies, we made it repeatedly clear that the armed forces of this country would not intervene in any way. But let the record show that our restraint is not inexhaustible. Should it ever appear that the inter-American doctrine of non-interference merely conceals or excuses a policy of non-action, if the nations of this hemisphere should fail to meet their commitments against outside communist penetration, then I want it clearly understood that this government will not hesitate in meeting its primary obligations, which are to the security of our nation. Nor would we expect or accept the same outcome which this small band of gallant Cuban refugees must have known that they were chancing, determined as they were against heavy odds to pursue their courageous attempts to regain their island's freedom. It is not the first time that communist tanks have rolled over gallant men and women fighting to redeem the independence of their homeland. Nor is it by any means the final episode in the eternal struggle of liberty against tyranny anywhere on the face of, glo of the globe, including Cuba itself. It is not primarily our interest or our security, but theirs, which is now today in the greater peril. It is for their sake, as well as our own, that we must show our will. The evidence is clear and the hour is late. We and our Latin friends will have to face the fact that we cannot postpone any longer the real issue of survival of freedom in this hemisphere itself. Almost immediately after, all efforts to overthrow the Cuban government through any means deemed necessary were pushed through. The Americans surprisingly did not keep their promise. Who would have guessed? Huh. Eisenhower State Official Lester Mallory. What are these names, by the way? <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, he wrote in a now declassified file that Castro would be removed, and I quote, through disenchantment and disaffection based on economic dissatisfaction and hardship, so every possible means should be undertaken to weaken the economic life of Cuba in order to bring about hunger, desperation, and the overthrow of the government. Of course, incredibly democratic and freedom-loving. Historian Thomas Patterson states, and I quote, had there been no exile expedition at the Bay of Pigs, no destructive covert activities, no assassination plots, no military maneuvers and plans, and no economic and diplomatic steps to harass, isolate, and destroy the Castro government in Havana, there would not have been a Cuban Missile Crisis. The fault of this entire, uh, I think the Americans call it a nothing burger at the end of the day, <laughs> um, this occurred as a result of American illegal aggression against Cuba, and as well as, of course, trying to, uh, quote-unquote, contain the Soviet Union. 
had they learned some restraint uh, with their missile systems, then maybe the world wouldn't have come to uh, the uh, near destruction uh, that it almost reached. But uh, hey, um, right now the United States hasn't learned, <laughs> clearly hasn't learned anything, as we were saying in what they're doing in, in Yemen and everywhere else. Anyways. Uh, formally concluding on October 28, 1962, the crisis was widely depicted in the news, particularly American news and their allies abroad, as a humiliating setback for the Soviets, uh, portraying the United States as the savior of the day, of course. In reality, though, it was Khrushchev's concessions and diplomacy that played a pivotal role in averting catastrophe. The crucial acceptance of the United States proposal for the secret removal of missiles in Turkey by Khrushchev was instrumental in preserving the world as we know it. Started by U.S. terrorist activities in Cuba, the crisis concluded with the United States rejecting a reasonable Soviet proposal only to continue their terrorism within Cuba as it continues to this day. Many times in the past, the Cuban people have risen to throw out tyrants who destroyed their liberty. And I have no doubt that most Cubans today look forward to the time when they will be truly free, free from foreign domination, free to choose their own leaders free to select their own system, free to own their own land, free to speak and write and worship without fear or degradation. And then shall Cuba be welcomed back to the society of free nations and to the associations of this hemisphere. My fellow citizens, let no one doubt that this is a difficult and dangerous effort on which we have set out. No one can foresee precisely what course it will take, or what course or casualties will be incurred. Many months of sacrifice and self-discipline lie ahead, months in which both our patience and our will will be tested, months in which many threats and denunciations will keep us aware of our dangers. But the greatest danger of all would be to do nothing. The path we have chosen for the present is full of hazards as all paths are. But it is the one most consistent with our character and courage as a nation and our commitments around the world. The cost of freedom is always high, but Americans have always paid it. And one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. With the tensions slowly declining from their apocalyptic peak, the Soviet missiles were removed from Cuba and American ones from Turkey, the world was left to assess what had just transpired. Two world powers, each determined not to back down, armed with the most destructive weapons mankind had yet conceived. For many looking back today, it's hard to imagine the existential terror regular people around the world faced during this nuclear near-miss. And yet, despite coming a hair's breadth from annihilation, we survived. So what were the ramifications of the Cuban Missile Crisis? For one thing, even though the situation had been incredibly dangerous, both parties now saw that their opponent was not willing to even bluff a nuclear first strike. Neither the US nor the Soviet Union had decided that it was in their best interest to try something that risky. And so perhaps the first outcome of the crisis was a better understanding of how hesitant the world powers were to engage in mutual destruction. A significant geopolitical change was that Kennedy had been forced to agree to never again attempt to overthrow Castro by force, which made the Americans quite nervous, because at the time, Cuba was still receiving somewhere around $300 million a year in Soviet aid. Having a Soviet foothold 90 miles off the coast of Florida was a big threat, as countries like China can attest today being surrounded by U.S. military bases. Another important outcome was the USSR doubling down on never again being bullied by the United States or any other world power. 
Khrushchev, and later his successors, oversaw the largest peacetime military buildup in modern history, reaching nuclear parity with the U.S. by the 1970s and building a naval fleet large and sophisticated enough to match the U.S. in any part of the world. While this was a positive development for the Soviets, they did have to contend with Chinese frustration at their capitulation to the U.S. during the missile crisis. The other Red Power pursued their own nuclear program, and by 1964 had detonated their first nuclear weapon. China was now firmly on its own trajectory, one that continued to diverge from the USSR, which, as we all know, eventually culminated in the disastrous and deeply foolish Sino-Soviet split. China took a more belligerent stance against the West, whereas the Soviet Union attempted to foster peaceful coexistence, including being willing to sign a partial nuclear test ban treaty with the US and Britain. China denounced this move as Soviet, quote, collaboration with the leader of world imperialism. Their relationship shattered, Mao reasserted all of China's past claims on Soviet territory, and even advocated for partition of the USSR. Beyond the US and the Soviet Union, Europe continued a process of decolonization that had begun in the aftermath of World War II. Britain, in particular, no longer fooling anyone that they were still a superpower, made an almost total withdrawal from Africa, leaving behind just a handful of stubborn pockets of white rule on the continent. Newly independent African countries began to forge a new path, rightly denouncing the Western powers and in many cases choosing to partner with China or the Soviet Union in matters of trade and development. Britain was now entirely beholden to the United States for its position in the world, relying on U.S. weapon systems to maintain their own nuclear deterrence, and left economically emaciated after the brutal years of World War II and subsequent imperial decline. At midnight, the Union Jack was lowered for the last time, and Kenya ceased to be a colony and became independent. It was estimated that a quarter million people witnessed the moving ceremony. Then it was as though someone had said, let joy be unconfined. Uninhibited tribal dancing took over. No one can say that Africans make the mistake of taking their pleasure sadly. Good luck to Kenya in her new role as an independent nation. But while Britain was pouting and licking its wounds, France had a new lease on life. Under the leadership of de Gaulle, France, while decolonizing as rapidly as Britain, chose not to rely so heavily on the US, and instead quietly pursued its own nuclear program. De Gaulle quintupled spending on R&D. He built significant bomber, missile, and submarine fleets, and ensured that France was the third nation to reach space with their 1965 satellite launch. This rapid and militaristic advancement spooked the US, and they tried to rein in their boisterous ally, First, by asking very politely that they cool it with the nukes. And when that didn't work, they invited France to join NATO's multilateral nuclear force, or MILF. De Gaulle wasn't into the idea of a MILF, and he told the US to get lost, and pulled the French military out of NATO, though France remained a political member. After this decision, the NATO headquarters was moved from Paris to Brussels. Capture France. This quiet town, like others throughout France, is destined to know an even greater quiet as a direct result of France's new foreign policy, U.S. installations are being closed. At the Cop 2 ammunition depot, a handful of Americans remain to load ammunition from storage igloos onto trucks for transfer to installations elsewhere. And at Rechefort, boats and assorted craft belonging to the United States are being moved to ports outside of France. A lone guard and his dog replaces hundreds of French employees. For the people of France, the American soldier has gone. Then, of course, there was the Vietnam War. The United States remained completely unwilling to allow communism to spread further than it already had, so naturally, they intervened. 
The Vietnam War is a long, bloody, and convoluted story, and one that deserves its own episode. But the short version is this. Through the use of cluster bombs, napalm, Agent Orange, white phosphorus, flamethrowers, and good old-fashioned American military savages, the U.S. butchered some 40 to 150,000 Cambodians and 1.1 million North Vietnamese. Our dearly departed Henry Kissinger did his part by delaying the end of the war to try to get less humiliating terms for the U.S. He eventually accepted the same exact terms he had been offered some two years before. You begin to suspect that we've reached the limits of our present strategy when the generals are talking openly about an invasion of the North and the men around Con Chan are talking about the need for tactical nuclear weapons. There seems little doubt that it is the administration's resolve to stay at Con Tien. The president made that clear last Friday night in his speech to the nation when he pointed to the Marines up at the DMZ as the real peacekeepers. A defeat or even a withdrawal now at Con Tien could be for him a political Dien Bien Phu. The president's dilemma is how to persuade the North Vietnamese to quit up there. Up to now, pure firepower hasn't done it. And it seems unlikely that he would order American troops into North Vietnam to do the job. Moscow and Peking would be bound to react sharply to such an escalation. Meantime, for the Marines at Contien, the months ahead look grimmer than ever. The fall monsoon rains have just begun. They will go on till February, hampering American air power, depriving the men on the ground of at least some of the air support they desperately need. The artillery duel at Contien will go on and on. This battle is different from any other action in the war in that there is no let-up. Day after unchanging day. And as long as the North Vietnamese can resupply their troops and guns, as long as they can send down reinforcements, there is little the Marines can do about it. Really, we could go on for decades. The fallout from the Cuban Missile Crisis lingered for years after the event. What began as brinkmanship snowballed into a complete restructuring of the balance of power on Earth. And we're still living with the consequences today.